Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, a global business network where I work half time. Uh, we do scenarios. We work with corporations and government and governments and departments of government, and all kinds of people, mostly doing scenarios about what's the sort of strategic environment that these large organizations are facing in the next 10 to 25 years. And what they usually pose to us is, uh, you know, what subjects do they really want to know about? And the answer is China, 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 and, and, and India. <laughs> and so and we often have Orville Schell, who's an old friend and buddy uh, from Bolinas days and things like that. In the Jerry Brown days, he did a book about Jerry Brown. If Jerry Brown had gone in higher in politics, he'd be reading his book about Jerry. Orville has been in the thick of some of the best public talks uh, given in the Bay Area the last 10 years because he's been organizing them out of the school of graduate school of journalism at UC uh, Berkeley and basically bringing in a series of major intellects to not only talk about what's going on in the world, going on in America, but going on with journalism. And so he's got a perspective not only on China, 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 and China, but a perspective on how media and policymakers and basically the global frame of reference is shifting in relation to China and China in relation to it. Please welcome Orville Schell. Well, welcome. It's great to, uh, to be here. Um, of this very interesting lecture series and to have answered the call of Stuart, an old and dear friend who, uh, in ways that have not always been apparent to me at the moment, is usually way out in front of things. And then later on, you kind of come to realize how that was true. Well, tonight, the topic is China. And in a, a curious way, too, I think uh, China has long been something of a long now. Uh, there is indeed no society that's had more millennia of history and history that's curiously rooted in a kind of a nowness in that it didn't aspire to change much. It, it did change, but it didn't aspire to change. In fact, when things went wrong, it always looked back. It looked back to the golden age of the Zhou dynasty when Things were exposed, supposed to have been somewhat exemplary as expressed through all the classics. And that's why it's such a curious fact that when China entered the 20th century and the old imperial system, which was basically a cyclical one, the dynasties would rise and fall and new dynasties would be formed and they would try to emulate the best of the past. Um, but it is so confusing that as China entered the 20th century, it sort of lost that gravity, that constancy, the, the uh, sort of repetitiousness of its culture in sort of uh, slightly evolved and embroidered form. And it took off on this incredible tear of trying this, trying that, trying something else, revolutions, counter-revolutions. And uh, it went through this period of serial cancellations of what it thought it was. That's a very difficult thing for a culture or a society to do. 
particularly one like China, which was so deeply rooted in its past, its traditions, and had such a profound respect for history and the notion that in history was embodied the model, the truth of the future. So in short order, we had uh, the fall of the Qing dynasty in 1911. We had the May 4th movement in favor of democracy and science against the Confucian canon. Then you got Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the Nationalist Party, the Republican movement, a kind of a mixture of Confucianism and Christianity of Western uh, political forms of governance and more traditional forms. And then, of course, Japan came in. That was the critical moment. And so that nationalist experiment, Republican experiment ended and you got Mao. And Mao was a totally different tack. It was an imported ideology from Russia, Europe, and China set off ultimately uh, uh, before 1949 in the so-called liberated areas and then in all of China on this incredible sort of magnificently mad experiment of revolution. And then uh, you got Deng Xiaoping, who in effect came on board. And it was interesting because I first went to China while Mao was still alive, while the Cultural Revolution still raged. And it was very interesting to have been able to do that and establish that as the baseline against which everything thereafter happened. So then Deng Xiaoping comes in. You know, he was uh, the sort of the, the, the epitome of rationalism, search truth from facts, black cat, white cat, what does it matter as long as it catches mouse, mice? You know, let's get it done, let's not be too political. Uh, and in effect, it was a counter-revolution. One that goes on today. The Antichrist was left in the cathedral, capitalism. And yet, the Communist Party continued to rule. And then, we have several other leaders since Deng, too, who have been sort of variations on the theme. But if you look back over that stretch of, of uh, that century of history, you find a society sort of in search of itself or in search of some other way to be. And that I want you to remember because it is a kind of an uncertainty principle that lurks behind all of the extraordinary dynamism, change, all of the city skylines you see when you go there, the amazing uh, facts of life, which uh, you're all familiar with and which bring you here tonight. You know, how are they doing it? Uh, if you are a little bit confused, though, about what this whole proposition is all about, well, You've come to the right place. Now, I'm not going to answer it for you, but I'm going to try to help you think through it uh, in a way that may help you make a little more sense about what are the d dynamics in, at, at work in this society. It's a gratefully hopeful society in many ways, increasingly wealthy, uh, increasingly innovative, entrepreneurial, increasingly confident. Indeed, it's increasingly arrogant. And in a certain sense, uh, it is as extreme a society today as it was during the Cultural Revolution, uh, except rather than having politics in command, the market is in command, profit is in command. Chinese do seem to have a curious way of when they try something, they go out at hammer and tongs. There is a kind of a totalism to the experiments that they've, they've undertaken over the last century. And, um, you know, that, that, that is something that is worth bearing in mind. 
Now, let me just uh, tell you what I want to do here. Um, we can't tell where China's going exactly, but we can see where it's been. And we can define the various sort of dynamic elements that are at work in the society. I mentioned uh, the fact that probably some of you are a little confused about how to factor in all of the things you hear about China that make it seem like such a, a miracle, a boom of uh, just amazing proportions that's enabled it to flood the world with, with uh, produce and, and goods and has enabled the middle class to rise, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into that. Uh, but on the other hand, there are an awful lot of things that are very destabilizing, that are unresolved, that are uh, uh, causing a tremendous amount of uh, uh, anxiety and, and nervousness within China. Indeed, the key word to remember here is unresolved. And that China is a place where if you are not accustomed to sort of a multiple personality, and if you're not accustomed to maintaining several things in your mind at once that are opposite, you probably won't have a very realistic appreciation of this place. So the contradictions are all real. And each of them, implicit within them, is a different scenario, a different future. And... That's important because everybody wants to kind of come to some term in terms of, well, all right, which is it? Which is most likely? Tell us. I mean, business wants to do due diligence. Governments want to do their form of appraisal of what's happening. What are the trends? I think it's very difficult to do that in the case of China. In fact, it is by a long shot, in my view, the most unresolved nation and society of consequence in the world. And it is that because it is in between things. And it is molting out of not just one system, not just communism, Marxism, Leninism, Mao's revolution. It is also molting out of Confucianism, molting out of traditional forms of governance and ways of seeing things, seeing, you know, leaders, seeing wives, husbands, children, families, you name it. So it's got a huge amount of contradictory baggage, which it is trying to evolve out of. And uh, it's very unclear where it's going. I have a friend who, at one point, I remember asking him w what he was doing. And he said, well, he said, I'm in between transitions. And I think that <laughs> that perfectly captures where China is today. So I want to sort of excuse your 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 uh, whatever sense of uncertainty you may have about how to analyze this country here at the outset. All right. Now, let's consider just a few basic facts here. It's got a population of about one point two five billion people, roughly could be one point three. The margin of error in the census of China is equal to the entire population of France. That just kind of gives you an idea what we're dealing with here. Um, it has an army of 2.5 million people. It's the largest standing army, not the most technologically advanced, but largest army in the world. It has roughly 800 million peasants, but it has an increasing number of those peasants coming into the cities. Indeed, big cities like Beijing and, and Shanghai have about, you know, a third of their populations are peasants who come from the countryside, what they call floating population. It has 160 cities over a million people. I mean, I wager I don't even know uh, 
three quarters of them and probably never heard of them. Uh, another statistic that is somewhat eye popping. It's the world's largest consumer, uh, and one could go on and on and on, but of agricultural and, uh, 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 and industrial goods and of all different kinds. It has lots of cheap labor, although it seems that it might be coming to something of a, uh, the edge of the envelope in a certain respect on that. Uh, and if you don't fully understand the power of cheap labor, go to Walmart. Uh, my family and I, we always play a game when we go shopping at Home Depot or Walmart or wherever we go to see, uh, you know, you look at the thing and you, you say, all right, give me odds. Uh, was it made in China? And there are very few things these days, as you well know, that aren't made in China and even fewer that are made here. This was once the sick man of Asia. It's now been substantially reborn. Okay, how do we analyze this? I'm going to do something that I hope will help you make a little sense out of the contradiction. I want to try to argue, first of all, on the bright side, the good scenario, China the miracle, China the, the boom, the indestructible force of the future. And then I want to turn around and put on another hat and, and, and show you some of the weak points. And then we'll see what we can make of that. China now has peaceful borders with almost every country that surrounds it, that, that uh, used to have, you know, four, had a 4,000-mile border with the Soviet Union, and there were, you know, myriad Soviet divisions encamped. It was a very hostile border, no, no longer. They had a war in 79 with Vietnam, relatively peaceful now. It's quite an accomplishment. They've had a peaceful transition to two leaderships following uh, Deng Xiaoping. It's not exactly a political system we would recognize. No one quite knows how the leaders come to be chosen. It is sort of a consensus building uh, 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 process. But uh, that is quite impressive. Whether they can continue to do that or not is another question, because the, it is an asystemic political system. They are, as you know, if you op open your paper, they are on the march in Asia, Latin America, in the Middle East. You know, while we are hunkered down, uh, squandering our fortune and all of our intellectual firepower in Iraq, they're showing up in Chile, Argentina, you know, Africa. They're doing, setting up a whole new series of Confucian, Confucius institutes like the Alliance Francaise. They're marching around the world in terms of soft power, hard power, trade. And interestingly enough, you know, when they go to another country, they don't ask questions about human rights. It doesn't matter what kind of governance. If there's good business to be done, they do it. Burma, Iran, Sudan, Venezuela, all fine. So there's a kind of a, 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 a new sort of rail economic that they have adopted. And this means that they can move into areas where Western countries, the United States, would have some, some problem. And this gives them an amazing advantage in terms of global uh, markets. They've gotten to be friendly with Russia. They're talking with the Vatican, as, as you may know. They're, the Catholic Church, as in the case of the Protestant Church, are uh, under the control of the Communist Party. They're called the Patriotic Catholic Church and Protestant Church. They do not uh, uh, recognize the uh, 
any connection to the Holy See, and the bishop does not are not appointed by the pope. They recognize Taiwan. That would be a great sort of moral or, or a sort of psychic coup if they could get the Vatican to dump Taiwan and recognize them. And they've come very close. They are now playing a major role in talks with North Korea. They've started actually to have a kind of a uh, ingenue role in some diplomatic conflicts. But they're still very wary about doing anything that in any sense would make it look like they didn't fully respect and recognize the absolute power of sovereignty as a sort of defense against any foreign intrusion. So they don't want to do anything in North Korea which would establish any precedent of international powers prevailing or invading or encroaching that then might set them up at some point as being um, you know, subject to similar kinds of, of foreign intervention. They have a very 19th century notion of sovereignty, very absolute. We're not quite sure of the number. 200 million people taken out of poverty in the last 10, 15 years. It's pretty impressive. Not quite joining the middle class in every case, but I don't think there's been any society, any country that's had anything like that in terms of a level of economic um, benefit. Give or take 10, 20, 30, 40 million, there's 300 million people with cell phones. Reception's great. You can go up to the foothills of Tibet and loud and clear as a bell. I mean, they really leapfrogged all over the landlines. I mean, our cell phone service is a, just a pathetic uh, <laughs> snarl of, of dropped calls and, uh, compared to China's. There are roughly 150 million people online, and that number just keeps going up. Uh, an interesting question, though, because how do you control online media when you're in a party that's used to doing that? That's a problem. Um, we can talk about that. Uh, every year, they graduate 350,000 engineering graduates. Uh, that's about five times more than us. Yes, they're bigger. Maybe their education isn't quite as good. This is one area of soft power the United States still has. But I fear we are squandering it. We should have a massive program of free fellowships and scholarships bringing, you know, 100, 200 Chinese students to this country uh, every year. And we don't. It's just a patchwork of whatever anyone can throw together. If we wanted to really influence people, we do that. But we don't have such a thing. And we doubtless will not have it anytime soon. Shanghai uh, has just, for example, a few little factoids, the largest shipyard, the largest Ferris wheel, uh, the tallest building. I think this is a GBN factoid that I found in some book. And they also have the fastest train. I think it's the only maglev, magnetic levitation train in the world that the Germans built for them coming in from the airport. And they're talking about building one out of Beijing or, you know, to do more. Uh, it's quite astounding, the infrastructural projects they've undertaken. Uh, they have plans for the tallest building. They are the largest producer of steel, cement, coal, dot, 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 dot. One could go on. They garner every year roughly a third of the world's foreign direct investment. It's an amazing statistic. Yes, they have problem with their banks and with their own financial markets, but still that's a quite a statistic. Um, annually, they have a 17% increase in the rate of production. Not bad. Now, all of these numbers are a bit, bit spongy, I admit. 
No one quite knows whether to trust them or not. But, uh, you know, give or take, it gives you an idea of incredible growth. If you've been in China recently, uh, you'll see the amazing amount of, of uh, new construction at airports, terminals, train stations, and uh, uh, railroad uh, uh, lines. And I think the most impressive thing at all, uh, of all is the freeway system. If you get out there and start driving around China, it's quite astounding. When I first went there, there was nothing but two-lane highways. You know, and peasants would throw their wheat out on and the trucks would winnow it as they drove over and you'd creep along at 10 miles an hour. Of course, there wasn't much traffic either. But now it's an entirely different situation. They've managed to do what this country did in the 50s, which is to really build very impressive and well-built trunk roads across the country. The United States, somebody told me it was actually negative, but uh, the statistics that I've seen, uh, we have a 1% savings rate. You know what China's is? It's about 40%. Now, there's a reason for that, too, because the welfare system is so bad. They have to save to look after themselves. But, uh, it, of course, it uh, bespeaks of the, the, the other uh, obvious fact, which is we're borrowing money as China bar- buys T-bills. And our debt is being subsidized by China, so we can buy, we can go to Walmart. It's a kind of a codependent relationship. On the one hand, it does sort of work. On the other hand, there are all sorts of things implicit in that relationship, which could be very dangerous. And, of course, finally, China has a growth rate that 9, 10, 11, sometimes 12 percent. That's staggering. You know, Japan was hovering around zero, one percent. You know, if it gets up to three percent, boy, that's, you know, that's great. Uh, and here's China chugging along, uh, worrying about overheating, not being too cool. There is a huge trade surplus, uh, most of it with the United States. Is this good or bad for us? Well, many people are worrying about it. Uh, this August, it was an $18.8 billion uh, trade surplus for the year. It looks like it's going to head up to 135, 150 even. Uh, foreign exchange reserves are uh, very high, almost a trillion dollars, around 900 uh, uh, billion at this point. They have in our T-bill account about 250 and rising uh, uh, billion dollars of T-bills. That's a lot of leverage over the world's most powerful country. And if you go to the cities, you know it's hard not to be uh, impressed. Uh, you look at the Olympic Village that's being built, this really quite beautiful, uh, beautifully designed Olympic Stadium. I mean, I don't think America could, could construct something on that scale now. We try to build a bridge, and it's a big deal. One company built on that bid on that bridge. And it, soon it'll be the Chinese who are building that bridge. Uh, we are losing our ability to do that kind of infrastructural problem. And China's role in the world is growing. It's getting a much better reputation. Uh, It is a more constructive citizen. uh, And uh, people are quite impressed and in some cases worried by it. All right. That's a good scenario, at least so far. What does it suggest about the future? Well, uh, let's talk about that. Now, I'm going to put on my other hat. 
and I want to completely bum you out. Uh, and I want to sort of turn the thing over and allow you to look at the seamy side of China, that part of China which is can be seen as quite uh, dysfunctional and actually menacing of this grand experiment. China has only 7% of the arable land and, of course, a quarter of the world's population. Bad start. And a lot of that arable land has been gobbled up in industrial parks and, you know, for uh, railways and freeways and, and, and uh, various other construction projects. They're not going to be self-reliant in food. In fact, what they tend to do now is import food for the coast and they're more self-reliant for food in the inland areas so they don't have the transportation bottlenecks. Car production, and this one way is a good is a good scenario of statistic, but from another way is a bad scenario of statistic. 2000, they made 640,000 cars. 2005, 3.1 million, and this number is just skyrocketing. And those of you who've been to China knows that no, there isn't a car company in the world that isn't trying to get in there. There are a lot of Chinese companies that are also building local cars, and every city is just crushed with traffic. It doesn't matter how many ring roads they build around Beijing. You still, it's, it's gridlock during rush hours. It's a real problem. And you also know the consequences of automobiles, uh, not just traffic. A small fact um, that just throw away chopsticks take some 70 million board feet of timber every year. You know, anything that China does is on a gargantuan scale because of the, 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 the population. Two-thirds of all its energy is coal. That's a very significant figure because coal is king in China. And as China turns and the world turns, uh, we will have to be mindful of coal because that is what keeps this whole gyroscope spinning. It is also what could threaten the world in terms of climate change, acid rain, uh, and various other kinds of uh, pollutants. Already in China, because of coal largely, and to some extent um, other, other uh, automobiles, 30% of the country has severe acid rain. That's a very that's a very serious uh, number. People estimate in the Academy of Social Sciences some 400,000 to a half a million people have premature deaths because of the air pollution. If you've been to China, you know you can go for weeks in big cities and never see the sky. I had a very interesting experience lately. Um, I was there, I think it was May, and my kids were in school in China and they had a vacation. And we wanted to take a little vacation tour. So we got a van, and got in, had a friend, and we went out uh, to Shanxi province, which is sort of in the northwest, which is coal country. And I thought, well, you know, we drive outside of Beijing, go get past the Great Wall, you know, then we'll see the sky. Well, we drove for, I don't know, it was four or five days, never saw the sun, never saw, saw the sky. And in fact, when you get beyond the Great Wall and then you get into coal country, what you see is one power plant after another, one cement factory after another, one sort of industrial plant burning coal. Indeed, in China, every week now, and again, I've heard different statistics, uh, one new 
coal-fired power plant comes online. I also heard a statistic the other day that said two. doesn't matter. A lot. Those power plants are not retrofitted with anything, and they are going to be there for 30 years or whatever the actuarial table is on a uh, coal-fired power plant. And it's a huge problem. 75% of China's lakes are polluted, and there is serious desertification, deforestation, causing floods uh, and various other sorts of dilemmas. Uh, 75% of the river water adjacent to cities is undrinkable. And in many cases, it is unusable for industrial uh, purposes. And what is even more shocking is that an alarming number of rivers have stopped flowing, to wit, the Yellow River which stops flowing in the summer about 200 miles up from its final uh, delta. And as I drove across Shanxi province uh, in May, uh, I didn't see a single river with any water in it. You pass bridge after bridge after bridge, no water. So the ground table is being pumped out. It's the only, it's the only refuge for, uh, for uh, industry and people who need water. And I should also say that landscape in that province, which I visited a number of times and, and first time long ago, uh, was one of the most desecrated landscapes I've ever seen in my life. Piles of coal everywhere, fly ash, you know, cement factories with wind sort of whipping the lime, the powdered limestone off of piles like the, off the face of Everest. Uh, and you would go for mile after mile, and there would be these incredible occlusions of junky little shacks with restaurants and truck stops, you know, the soil saturated with solvents and oil, and then all up and down these roads, thousands and thousands of coal trucks. There's an article just day before yesterday in the New York Times about this coal trucking industry. In fact, coming back into Beijing, it was May Day, in the communist holiday, and all of the coal trucks were being kept out of Beijing. They had to wait for a couple of days while the holiday got over. And so there were these armadas of these trucks with truck drivers, you know, thousands of trucks just stopped along the road waiting. And you got a sense of the, the, the incredible, the staggering dimension of this energy question for China, the one that coal is the answer because China has a lot of coal. Unfortunately, it's, um, you know, very high sulfur content coal. And I should say that the mining industry in China is extremely primitive. And there are thousands of deaths every year of miners. It's very unregulated. And the Shanxi coal barons are, of course, famous for their wealth. And they all live in Beijing and drive big black cars. Uh, but, you know, China's got the needle in its arm. But then so do we. 16 out of the 20 most polluted cities in the world are said to be in China. I've also heard six out of the 10 most polluted cities. I mean, in China, you hear a lot of statistics that sort of blow your mind and you don't know which is true. And sometimes they conflict, but most of them are on the on the uphill side of astounding. The trouble with the these environmental statistics is that a large measure of unrest that is unfolding in China grow out of environmental questions. They also grow out of corruption, 
confiscation of land by officials. But the environment is increasingly a cause of great restiveness. Pollution, you know, rivers being contaminated, fields being taken away from peasants, uh, air pollution, one thing and another, toxic dumps, uh, you know, coastal uh, uh, waterways, coastal habitat destroyed. And this is, a, this is a, a, something that the, the party is getting very concerned about. In fact, last year, by the party's own admission, there were 87,000 instances of notable public unrest. That isn't just somebody standing with a picket sign. The year before, as I recall, the figure was 74,000. That's very high. The year before that, I think it was 50 or something. It's on the rise, and there are a lot of different reasons causing it. Corruption is a big problem in China. And one of the reasons corruption has such purchase on the way things are done in China is for this reason. When the revolution came about, the Communist Party confiscated everything, all buildings, all land. Everything was nationalized and nobody was nobody was uh, uh, compensated. Now that the market is on fire, this land, these buildings are worth a fortune. And the people who control them, control these state assets, are officials that don't get paid very much. And they get in league with the banks and form projects, and they are the wicket keepers for what land gets sold to who and what goes into what project. And there's a huge temptation and a huge prospect to make an awful lot of money. It would be as if the government had owned everything here and had fed it back into the economy and the marketplace with officials uh, determining where it went and, and uh, profiting from it. Um, it's a very odd situation in China because it's still there's much state owned enterprise and you have the anomalous situation where, uh, you know, the army or, or, or the Air Force or the Public Security Bureau will own a hotel or a series of restaurants or a whorehouse or a casino, or whatever it is, they're, they're playing. So it would be as if the Department of Environmental Protection here had a string of golf courses to raise a little income on the side. It's very curious, and I've never seen any reputable economist address that, that situation of the state ownership uh, and the way in which the state feeds property into the sort of the private side of the marketplace how that influences uh, the economic picture. I mean, how do you build that into a model? People estimate, uh, reputable economists, uh, that somewhere between 8 and 12 percent of GDP should be written down in terms of vi environmental cost, albeit perhaps long term rather than short term. That's a very high figure. That's almost the entire growth rate of China. And uh, it is alarming because it suggests that the in the long term, there's going to be a real cost uh, that, in other words, they're burning up assets now, which they'll come back to pay for later on. Now, it's also a Leninist state, lest we forget. China's reformed economically. It hasn't reformed politically. And the real question is, what does it do with the institutions that are sort of on the political side of the ledger that remain. If you walk to Tiananmen Square now uh, from the east, you'll pass a giant building on the left-hand side just before you get there, right across from the Beijing Hotel. 
And that is the new public security building. I mean, it's vast, not badly designed either. But the question that you finally have to ask when you think in terms of China's peaceful evolution is what do they do with that? What do they do with the party? What do they do with the military? What do they do with the state security? What do they do with the people's armed police? What do they do with these myriad institutions which have hundreds of millions of people in them? Uh, how, do, how do you reform that? That's a lot harder to reform than some of the things they've already tackled. It's a problem. China has twice as many people as they had 50 years ago. Real problem. 12 million new mouths each year, new people to get jobs for. It has an aging population, very much uh, weighted on the side of people who have now retired. It also has a very weak pension plan. Uh, it used to be that everybody's welfare was taken care of by their state enterprise. You worked in a factory, you had health care, your kids went to school there, you got an apartment, they took care of you, you get married, you died, they got you a coffin. When you got sick, you went to the hospital and you got a little pension when you were when you were when you retired. That is melting away. And they have not managed to reconstitute a pension program that really uh, can do the job. That's why there's such a high savings rate. That's a real problem. There's a broken health care system. Used to be that health care was free, but that it came with your unit. Now hospitals are increasingly privatized or they will take you out of the common wheel. And there is a price for an appendectomy, but you will never get that appendectomy performed unless you you slip a, a, a substantial amount of money to the doctors under the table to get on the uh, to get on the uh, on the schedule. And they don't quite know what to do with that. It's a it's a it's a dilemma uh, of transition. The new system is not born. The old system is not working. Banks, uh, real problem, huge amount of loans out that the state has made banks give. Banks are not commercial banks in the sense that we uh, know them, that they do due diligence. They look at an, an investment in terms of risk and then they make the loan. Banks very often have to make huge investments just to uh, satisfy the government. They're trying to wean them away from that. But constantly the government requires this to happen because they fear instability. They don't want to let a state-owned enterprise with 50,000 employees collapse if those 50,000 people are going to be out in the street. So they loan it more money. So the non-performing loans in banks are huge. Stock markets, traditional way, as you all know, that a capitalist society raises money. You sell stock. You have a company, you sell stock. China has two stock markets, and they've grown, but uh, they're basically casinos that get manipulated in a lot of ways. Uh, and one of the biggest problems of these stock markets is that companies early on learned, hey, let's issue stock and we'll get a lot of money and we'll all buy cars and we'll buy houses and it'll be great. And they did. But one of the things they couldn't do because the market was so small, they couldn't put all their stock on the market. They call it overhang. So a half to two thirds, nobody quite knows of all the stock that companies own isn't on the market and the government won't let it go on the market. So in effect, what you have is a rigged market, a market that doesn't operate according to market principles, but that is being controlled by the government. 
And if the government feeds a lot of stock in, the market usually goes down. So it's a, it's a uh, how do they get out of that trap? Nobody quite knows. But without financial markets to finance their own development, they're forced to rely on the banks and outsiders. So it's a strange system that's not like anything, uh, you know, financiers here would recognize. I might add that doesn't uh, weaken the ardor of many investors who, uh, you know, in my experience, um, many of them don't really want to know what's going on. They just want to get in. They figure they cannot but be there. And some of them make money and a lot of them have come a cropper because the, 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 the powerful sort of psychological urgency of getting into the largest and most dynamic market in the world. And then, you know, you have things lingering around in China, like the legacy of 1989, that undigested massacre, that moment in history, greatly tragic, that nobody has been able to lay to rest. It's like an uninterred corpse. Uh, does it matter? Well, it all depends on what you think. I mean, does it matter that human beings or societies come to terms with their past? Does it matter that... You know, Willy Brandt got down on his knees in the Warsaw Ghetto to apologize for what the Germans had done during the war. Who's to say? Does it matter that the Japanese repent and apologize? I think in some deep way it does. And there is no nation that has avoided its history more sort of consistently than China. And can it escape finally what it's done? Can it escape what the party did to the people? whether it's the Great Leap Forward, 30 million dead from famine, whether it's the Cultural Revolution, whether you name it, uh, does it matter that can you just take that and say, listen, let's not talk about it. Let's not. We got a good thing going here. Let's not dwell on it. Um, you know, depends on what you think is important and what you think is a state of health uh, for for a society. So um, I could go on. But I won't. Um, there you have these two very interesting sort of panels of facts, phenomena, dynamics, and there are many, many others I haven't gotten to on both sides of the ledger. Now, you've probably sort of forgotten the first group, at least the, the, that sort of light bulb burning in your mind after you turn it out. It's probably dimmed a bit as I've gone recounted this other group. So how do we reconcile these two these two kind of very contradictory uh, um, lists of, of, of conditions. I don't think we can. I think what one can think in terms of is this, that the best possible scenario for China is what the party is very wary of hearing called peaceful evolution. That means peaceful, piecemeal change. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, when he was asked, um, you know, where is China going? He used an expression that's not very common in Chinese, you know, we're, we're walking across, the, we're feeling our way across, no, we're crossing the river by feeling our way over the stones on the bottom. And it, 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 it does not, you know, bespeak of a tremendously highly evolved notion of destination. It's all in the process. And it's going there very rapidly. And if you want to talk to people about where it's going, you get a kind of deer in the headlights look. And if you then ask about, well, politically, what's the aspiration? 
you'll get the same look. You know, maybe a little more democracy. What does that mean? Well, you know, who, who knows? And the interesting part of that aversion is this, that having ha- had the big dream of socialist utopianism dangled over them for so long, you know, with all the steps of how to get there, you know, the bourgeois national revolution, the this, the that, and then they're going to get to paradise. You know, I think the Chinese are a little sick of the big picture, a little sick of grand visions, and a little wary at this point of charismatic, big-top rulers who run them over the cliff. And so in a curious way, uh, not only does the party not find it expeditious to speak of grand visions of where they're going, but people, too, are just, you know, they, they, they leave me alone. Let me let me redecorate my bathroom. You know, let, let me get that car uh, just as long as everything's OK. Hey, I won't make trouble. But as we know in societies, there are always troublemakers. And what we also know indelibly that as long as economies are going up and expectations are uh, hopeful and people are on the escalator, which they are in China now, uh, you can get away with almost anything in terms of contradictions and, and unresolved unres- you know, institutions and lack of clarity of vision. The problem comes, as inevitably it does, and China has been incredibly lucky that it hasn't come yet, and it may not come, is in the cycles. We know their business cycles. We know their economic cycles. And even more important, we know the world is highly fragile in its construction economically. And that some perturbation outside of China could have a very profound effect in China. Let's just take something that could happen here. The housing market goes south. Nobody can borrow money anymore. They're losing their houses. And their credit cards are run up. They can't go to Walmart. They can't go to Home Depot. That could have a very profound effect on China. So the thing to watch out for and the thing I think ultimately China fears most, of course, there are all these internal problems that they have to deal with. But what they fear most is that the economic situation will slow down to a point where they'll have more people in the streets and unhappy. And they'll have more people saying, who are we going to blame? Someone's got to be at fault. Why don't I have a job? And that, to me, is, is, is the main danger to look towards because uh, the legitimacy base of China is based very narrowly on economics now. Nobody much believes in communism or the party. Or, and, in fact, the whole value system is rather vague. You know, who, if you're a Chinese, who are you? Are you Confucian? Are you Taoist? Maybe you could be Christian. Are you uh, communist? Are you Marxist? Are you Maoist? Are you Deng Xiaopingist? Are you Adam Smith? I mean, what do you believe in? And where do you turn when you need to know how to do something right? How to relate to someone in a proper way? It's very vague now, very uncertain. And it creates a lot of uh, not only instability, but uh, um, a kind of a, a murkiness in, in, in people knowing what to do when push comes to shove. Maybe I'll just end here and we can have some questions. Uh, You know, China is a work in progress. And it is a a country trying to molt out of one system into another system that is not too clear. 
And it is a country that's had incredible success and shows incredible promise. And, and uh, it's got an awful lot of extraordinarily bright young people in China uh, who have immense capacity. And yet there are, there are a lot of things that don't confront other countries by way of dealing with past business, past institutions uh, that uh, nobody quite has an answer for. And that makes it very interesting. That makes it probably the most interesting country in the world. But it also makes it a very provisional country uh, whose future is not gloomy by any means, but whose future is not, let's say, assured, like, you know, give or take, Canada is going to be Canada, right? Growth rate will go up and down. France, I mean, you name it, most countries, they could have some problems, even Argentina, but they don't have built within them the kinds of structural anomalies and contradictions that, that China does. And China's challenge will be in somehow managing to manage to keep evolving and to resolve those in a way that doesn't uh, cause any sort of precipitous bump in the road. All right, I'll stop here. Let's, uh, let's have some questions. Uh, and we're going to do the... Uh, Here's a question from uh, Garrett Gruner. It's been said that uh, China is using Singapore as a model. Is China keeping up with Singapore's historic evolution? If they were to keep pace, when would China begin liberalizing politics? Well, I suppose then you would have to ask the question, when did Singapore liberalize politics? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They've come a little way. To some degree they did. But still, it's basically a one-party a city-state, and I mean, they're they're certainly more liberal in areas of people's lifestyle, and to some degree, certain degree, in freedom of the press. I think actually that is the best model, uh, and I think they once did aspire rather ardently to be a large Singapore. Uh, that's cooled off a bit with the cooling off of the whole Asian values uh, uh, fever when they thought, you know, a kind of a neo-Confucianism revived. Uh, there was something special about being Asia, Asian, and Singapore embodied that. You know, another interesting model, though, would be Korea or Taiwan, which were also one-party Leninist states and did molt out into a much more uh, democratic and, and truly open societies. But they, they each has their own conditions. And then, you know, you compare China with India. I mean, India, my God, the things that happen in India... And nobody bats an eye. You know, the riot in Gujarat and kill thousand people and it's still on inside of the newspaper. If anything like that happened in China, it truly would be a, a, a shock that I think they would have a very difficult time surviving because it's more tightly wound. It is a control society. India isn't. If something blows up in India, people just say, oh, well, it's, you know, some state in India is having trouble and let's just keep business going as usual. But China, it would be a shock in a way to the pretension of the system, the Leninist model of the party to control things and to control news and to control image and and everything else. Play play that out a little bit. You're you're describing a very large, consequential and brittle China. Yes. I mean, I think in a certain sense, politically speaking, China is incredibly brittle. And in fact, right now, we don't quite know what's going on. We never do. And that's astounding, too, that a society of such importance could be so 
lacking in political transparency. But there's a crackdown on the press. There's crackdown on, uh, you know, various kinds of uh, uh, business uh, mergers and partnerships. There's a there's a kind of feeling. And if you hang around China as long as I have, you can almost atmospherically feel this sort of thing. You know, programs are being canceled. Uh, something is causing them to be very, very nervous. And we don't really know what it is. Is it factionalism? Is it civic disturbances? Is it uncertainty about the economy? I mean, in a certain sense, China's never been better. And its place in the world has never been more assured. But these are the kind of things that uh, emanate from the kind of contradictions I've described. So suppose there's some kind of crackdown. Uh, what happens with 150 million people on the Internet? Well, the Internet is an extremely interesting case where we see being fought out the old propensity towards control. And the propaganda department of the party is what controls the media largely. There are a few other organizations that do, too. They see the Internet and they say, we need it. We want it. It's an engine of business, of innovation, of communication. And the party uses it to great good effect, communicating with counties, communicating with provinces, propagandizing, making, uh, you know, the, the process of government more smooth. But on the other hand, they're very wary of its sort of seditious aspect. And that's why when Google goes in, they make Google censor a whole raft of words from their search engine. When Yahoo, which is an interesting situation because they don't own their China subsidiary, they, they've sort of bought a partnership with a Chinese company, Alibaba. When they, China demands information on someone they don't like, they give it over to them, and the guy went to jail for 10 years. When Microsoft is asked to yank down a website, a weblog, uh, off of its server here, they do it. That's the price. And in the meanwhile, they also do destroy their brand name to some extent. And I have to say, these companies are, are good companies. They're smart people. They don't want to do the wrong thing. But the price of doing business is that. And the Chinese are very, very wary. They've kept the media out of China. You can't buy companies. It's very hard to be a media player in China unless you have a magazine company that does fashion, technology, things like that tech stuff. So th th this is a real question of the wicket keepers of the information technology revolution. And I think finally they're going to have a hard time controlling it. But I would have to say to date, we have a whole project at the Graduate School of Journalism, the China Internet Project. We watch this. And if you want to know more about it, go to China Digital Times on the net. And it's a whole website on China and the, the sort of efforts to, to deal with the Internet, but it is the heart of the matter, and we see the old system contending with the new. It is the perfect Petri dish for uh, the kinds of contradictions I've been talking about. Okay, here's uh, maybe another hard-edge, soft-edge question. Eddie Moliono is here somewhere, right over there. What do you think of overseas Chinese and their relation with the mainland? I mean, there's a huge diaspora that's been going on for a century or two. Yeah. I, you know, overseas Chinese, uh, you know, having come from China, and this, and this I would, to some extent, include Taiwan, mm -hmm. Macau, Hong Kong. 
you know, they, they, they were sort of, it's sort of like the Israelites removed from Israel, you know, removed from the holy sepulcher of their culture. And there was a great sort of tendency and a welcome and a sense of relief when they could go back to China, invest in China and be patriotic. And they have. And they proved to be a significant engine uh, for China's growth. But it's now reached the point where that sort of intermediary uh, uh, role that they played has, has been transcended by, you know, you have everyone going in there now from Walmart, Carrefour, all these great big companies, Home Depot. Um, so they, they, they play, I think, a less instrumental role than they did early on. Here's a question from Amber Kerr. Where are you, Amber? Standing up and waving. All right. Um, there's considerable interest in China right now, but in re renewable energy, particularly wind. Are you op optimistic that renewables will play a significant role in China's future? Uh, a talk we want to have in the series and almost had this month uh, was William McDonough talking about the greening of China because he's been in the thick of uh, being hired apparently by the Chinese government to design five or six totally green total cities and uh, they you know, they bought his book Cradle to Cradle in vast quantities and are talking only about a circular economy and one of the scenarios you see coming through GBN is, is a greening of China. They're so far hard over on the on green reality but they're wealthy and purposeful, and they can move very fast. And, you know, they can build. They can't, we can't build a, a bridge to Oakland, but they can build anything they want, including green cities. Is there a green China scenario? Well, I mean, there, there is, and these green cities, I think, have great promise. But there's a paradox at work here, too. I mean, everywhere you turn in China, I hate to say it, there's a contradiction. And here's the contradiction for green China. You go to Beijing or you go to big cities or to provincial capitals, and you meet some amazing people in the environmental field who are smart, they get it, and, you know, they're working extremely hard, and they've passed really good laws and regulations, and it looks all fired up and ready to go. However, then you get down to where, you know, the rubber has to meet the road, the local officials who are actually going to implement these, reg these regulations, and... It's another story. So whereas in this country, we have almost a brain dead national leadership on the environmental front. <laughs> but we have actually in many states incredibly exciting, interesting programs, our own state certainly being being one uh, in China. You have enlightenment at the national level and a lot of very smart officials who have a very, very, very difficult time affecting their policies locally. Why? Because that 12% growth rate. And every region is vying for every project they can get their hands on. Nobody wants to slow anything down with high costs, with retrofitting, with any new technology that will raise the bottom line. And that's the dilemma. Nonetheless, there are interesting things happening. But here is the, the final outcome. Environmental protection goes up this much. You know, they're, 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 it's like this. Okay, so environmental protection goes up this much and development goes up that much. So even though you have these very interesting projects and efforts, you're still falling behind. And coal is the demon. If you had to put your finger on one thing, and China is not going to get off coal for a long, long, long time. Are you saying they're not moving toward nuclear power? 
They are, but even in the most hysterically optimistic scenario, if you happen to love nuclear power, uh, it's going to be relatively minor for the near future. And thus, it's back to coal. And, you know, there's some liquefied natural gas. There's natural gas from Central Asia, possibilities from Russia and whatnot. But still, coal is king. And to fuel that growth, that's where they're going to turn. It's cost effective. Here's a question maybe on the uh, good scenario side from Kevin Kelly. It's right here. Unlike most of Asia or even the rest of the developing world, China's cities seem to lack significant squatter cities and ghettos. If true, why? I mean, we had a talk last year from Rob North about squatter cities of the world. There's a billion people living in squatter cities all over the world. Two billion more coming in mega cities of 10 and 20 million, some going toward 30 million, more than half slums. China's had 300 million people move from the country, these peasants to the cities, just in the last 40 or 50 years. And Kevin, at least, didn't see major slums there. Uh, what's yeah. the story? Well, it's interesting. There are these sort of new cities of the floating population that, that get built up on the outskirts of big cities. And, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not like the ones you see in the Philippines or Brazil, but they're constructed, you know, free form by people who have no homes. Uh, and those people, until recently, they've started to acquire some rights. They don't have rights to be there. They don't have rights to go to school. They don't have rights for health care. So there, there are some of these sort of... Uh, Do they have water and electricity and sanitation? Well, they bootleg it. They bootleg Good it enough. in. Well, I mean, you know, wow. and, and they, they've come from villages where they may not have had electricity either. So, right. I mean, it's, it's amazingly the, uh, the innovation that is used without, right. you know, official city services in some of these places. Is it also, the case that they sometimes bulldoze those floating populations? Well, at different times, like the, during the Olympics, I wager you'll see some of these disappear. <laughs> uh, and the other thing they do, which is very interesting, on construction sites, they build these dormitories right on the construction site. They, they're not, you know, like people in downtown New York living in cardboard boxes, but they're sleeping three and four in submarine-like bunks. Uh, and there you see them, uh, and they eat right there. And it's very simple, very primitive, but it's worthwhile. And so that absorbs a huge number of people who are actually working right on the construction site. Okay, I've got two questions related, one from Ann Harrison. Some demographers predict that China's one-child policy result in a near-term population collapse or aging with enormous economic implications. Do you agree with that? And related question, and then also the question relates to the gender imbalance because people are getting uh, uh, ultrasounds and finding out which gender the baby is and mm -hmm. keeping the male ones. Um, Question from Robin Sloan, who's here somewhere. Uh, you mentioned that the Chinese political process is mysterious. So do you have any insight into how a young person rises to leadership? Is there class mobility? Where will China's next leaders come from? This presumably bears relation also to the demographic weirdness mm -hmm. going on. Well, it's interesting. China's leadership now is almost exclusively technocrats you know, engineers and, and people of that ilk, a few scientists. Uh, it used to be, of course, that China's entire leadership were humanists. They studied the classics. They took the examinations. They were men of letters. They knew nothing about technology, banking, science. 
Um, and then even during the communist period and the pre-communist period, most of these people were highly educated, you know, political philosophy, you name it. Uh, that's changed, and partially because politics gets people in trouble. And if you are in the political world, the literary world, or you studied history or something else, you, 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 you were certain to have had some trouble. And you might still have a tendency to do things, say things, think things, whereas technocrats are very matter-of-fact and, and much more um, ruly, if you will. So uh, I think if you were an aspiring young person, you either come up through the technical fields or through financial business fields, and you keep your nose basically out of politics. Here's one from John Gilmore, classic John Gilmore question. Uh, is the turnover rate among the Communist Party Central Committee higher than the turnover rate in the U.S. Congress? Um, as rumored? You know, I don't know the answer to that. The Central Committee has about 200 people, and then there's the Politburo, and then there's the Standing Committee of the Politburo. They shrink it down. I think it's nine, ten people now, something like that. Uh, and I don't know. It depends on what has just happened. Mm. Like after the Cultural Revolution, they would have hosed the place out. Mm. You know, after 1989, you know, there would be winners and losers. Uh, during the most recent period, of course, Hu Jintao's people will try to, to edge out Jiang Zemin's old people. And there's all this jockeying going back and forth. But I don't actually have a seating chart uh, to be able to tell you what the recent, uh, uh, you know, change has been. Okay, a question from Greg James. Out there somewhere. Uh, given China's past, everything is all right now. Uh, did it ever really think and plan long term? And can it think, this is going right to your title, mm. can it think and plan long term now? And if so, how? Well, this is the, another great paradox. How could a society that was so consecrated to five-year plans and visionary plans have gotten to walking across the river by feeling their way over the stones? Uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. It's almost as if the Chinese leaders figure it's better not to broach these questions. Let's just keep going and we'll get someplace. It's sort of the mantra is almost more. But no big ideas. Um, it sounds a lot like the Internet, actually. <laughs> it is. It does have a kind of an incredible dynamism and a capacity for infinite growth. But no clear no plan to try to no keep up with the central scale. nervous system. Although China has a central nervous system, it's just they're not going to do this. You know, you would not get, for instance, on Chinese television, Ken Burns doing Thomas Jefferson, you know, doing Sun Yat-sen or doing it's too complicated. It's a minefield. It, 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 nobody quite knows what the right version of their history is anymore. When Chinese tourists go to the Great Wall, which I assume they do, what do they see? What do they think? I think they see the same thing Richard Nixon did. They say, that's a Great Wall. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they feel proud that it represents something. And, you know, there's the, I think it's untrue, in fact, that you can see it from outer space. Rusty, no, you you're can't. here. Can no. you see the Great Wall from right. outer space? There's Not, Rusty. Yeah. No. Um, I think they feel proud that so many people want to come and see their Great Wall. The truth is, most of the Great Wall is just a pile of rocks. And the, the part that you visit has been carefully reconstructed. Uh, so well, Ken Wilson had a question. Uh, do they still do any five-year plans? 
They do. They have a five year plan. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the description of what's happening is socialism with Chinese characteristics. So the ideology now that they that's that's what the five year plans are supposed to be aspiring towards. So, you know, the kind of the ideological slogans like Jiang Zemin's uh, four represents. I mean, they're, they're really not, you know, big page turners. Uh, and they're not calculated to be. Uh, they do not want to pin the tail on the donkey and say what's what and where things are going. You know, in the olden days, there used to be a thing called Zheng Feng, where they would rectify the wind. They would rectify the names. They would try to bring the name of things back into alignment with reality. You know, as things, you know, we have a problem here in this country. We with go the other way, right. Not describing reality. Uh, but that's not very much on the leaders' minds today. What happened to the mandate of heaven? That was the title of one of your books. Well, you know, it's interesting. The mandate of heaven was this notion during imperial times that heaven, which had no God, no, no sort of personification of a deity, conferred grace on an emperor to rule. And the way you knew this mandate was still conferred on the emperor was there would be peace and harmony in the empire. Mm -hmm. And if things started getting uh, out of sorts or there were earthquakes or peasant rebellions, then one could infer that the mandate had, had lapsed. This is very much in the kind of unconsciousness of Chinese today. And they know that there are certain things throughout history, because many people know at least popular versions of history, that, that there are certain signs of mandates of heaven lapsing, like peasant rebellions, cults, you know, boxer rebellions, you know, red turbans, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's why they were so afraid of Falun Gong in, in, in significant measure. They, this could be perceived by an insurgent cult sort of bespeaking of the failure of the modern version of the mandate of heaven conferring grace on the party and its right to rule unilaterally. So there's all this kind of stuff that's sort of deeply ingrained, almost unconsciously and autonomically in the system of Chinese that, that operates, that everybody feels and knows, and it's very hard to describe, and foreigners don't quite get it, but, you know, it's all there. Uh, pair of related questions, one from Bart Malaki. What is being overlooked by thinking of China as one entity? And Philip Cast, uh, how much of an issue is geographic disparity in China's future, given all these highways and everything? Presumably they're trying to address that, but uh, how regional is it really? Well, you know, it's quite regional, even though they've been masterful in, in tying it together with communications networks. Uh, Economic power is, can be very regional. And then, of course, there's all of the ethnic uh, division fault lines, whether it's Tibet and Buddhism, uh, Xinjiang, the West, and Muslim areas, Mongolia, half of which, as you know, is part of China now that the Chinese gave away in 1926, I think it was. And then there's outer Mongolia, which is now independent. What they fear, because this is the last piece of the Chinese uh, kind of commitment to the revolutionary platform, namely unity of this multi-ethnic state. That's why they're so rigid on Taiwan. That's why they were so insistent on getting Hong Kong and Macau back. And that's why they just will not hear any reason on Tibet. They don't want this idea of China reunified, the motherland, you know, after it was pecked apart by foreigners to be tampered with. 
So there, it's a very important notion. It has also something to do with this kind of the, 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 this, the brittleness of the system. Is there any chance you mentioned that they're being very delicate with North Korea? North Korea could implode any old time. Um, did, would China see that as part of their old imperium and something that should be reabsorbed? I think they're very afraid that a little bit like West Germany, that, you know, East Germany was all well and good to bring down the wall. But then you had to deal with all these East Germans. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, just as the South Koreans are very wary of what will happen if North Korea explodes and they suddenly acquire, uh, you know, the care of all those North Koreans. China feels exactly the same way. There's a big North Korean ethnic minority population in Manchuria across the border. And I think, you know, the, in South Korea's view and in China's view, the best scenario is keep the lid on things. Don't don't do anything that will jostle it too much. And let's just hope slowly something happens. The last thing they want is a precipitous explosion. Uh, here's an essay question from Bill Leitner. Uh, compare and contrast. China or sorry, Japan incorporated rise and fall vis-a-vis -vis American economic position um, in relation to China incorporated. Well, you know, I mean, the one thing to take note of is, do you all remember back in the 80s when people were writing books about the rising sun and the Japanese were buying Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach and we thought, Jesus, what are we doing wrong? And we've got to learn from these people. We're going to be they're going to suck our brains out and walk away with our economy. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not saying China, that's China's fate. I'm only saying that. There is a kind of, and you remember the five dragons, and then 1997 came, and do you remember Silicon Valley and the bubble that came back? But uh, it's only to say that, uh, you know, Japan has been up and down, and I think it would be most unrealistic not to factor into some accounting of the Chinese discussion of scenarios uh, any number of things which could have a similar effect. I don't predict it. I don't want it. Uh, but I, it would be, I think, very naive not to assume that China's relation with Japan now is very bad. But Japan now has a new prime minister who seems to be much more dedicated to ameliorating that relationship. But I have to say, China does export a huge amount of sort of grievance energy to either Taiwan or Japan. In other words, don't blame us. Don't seek redress of grievances in, in Beijing, blame the Japanese for World War II and Nanjing Massacre and everything else under heaven. And the Japanese haven't been so accommodating about uh, making an apology like the Pope you know, and the Muslims. There's a, there's a kind of a victim syndrome going on there that, that to what degree do you go to, to propitiate it? It's kind so, of hard to feel sorry for that big and successful victim. I mean, how long Japan? Does play? Yeah, no, I was thinking, no, China, they're still playing, you know, the Nanjing was this horrible mm -hmm. rape that happened to us, and why doesn't anybody apologize? Well, you know, it's very interesting that, that, that you raise that, Stuart, because it is sort of counterintuitive that a country now so successful should feel itself to be quite so vulnerable and to still feel this victim syndrome, but it just bespeaks of the depth of that historical experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very often now, they use it less, but it's still you see it when China is making a grievance against someone. They say in Chinese, it's literally it's hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. 
It's as if they're saying, Mommy, he hit me. You know, it's not uh, real interest. It's something that, that, that is quite visceral. So that continues. And, and I, I have a kind of in my head, a kind of a little hot sauce uh, thermometer that I'm constantly trying to gauge the level of that victim impulse, because it's precisely when China begins to grow confident enough and outgrow that feeling that it will then become a more constructive and, I think, positive world player. Uh, often people go from the victim role to an uh, arrogant bully role. Is there a chance of that kind of flip going on? I mean, there's some of that present now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a lot of arrogance in China now and a lot of talk about America being weak and hopeless and can't tie its shoes and declining empires and China peacefully rising. That's strong. what the Japanese were saying last decade, wasn't it? I mean, you go back and you read these books. I recently did have a look at some of them. And, you know, you have to you have to admit that uh, when we get off on a tear in believing somebody's got the answer, Mm -hmm. we can be pretty myopic about the the problems. Here's a uh, multiple choice question from Rusty Schweiker. The before, you get to pick any two or three. What are the roles of the following in China today? One, Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, probably Christianity. Uh, Two, women. Three, science. Whoa, wait, whoa. <laughs> you get to pick any one of these and say what's the role. Okay. And the, the fourth one is violence. Okay, well, let's try to go through these one another. Well, the first one was, re- was religion, right? Uh, yeah, religion, Bo- uh, Buddhism, Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Christianity. What else? Uh, yeah, uh, Falun Gong cults. Well, listen, Christianity um, is making a big comeback. And it's precisely because there is a real vacuum at the heart of the sort of the values belief proposition. You know, the market is great and people really have had a chance to, to improve their lives. And, and, and now they're, they're asking some deeper questions. You know, what's the meaning of life? And so religion is really enjoying something of a comeback. This is true of Tibetan Buddhism. Is this organized religion or cults uh, well, invented your own religion or what? It's all kinds. You know, okay. in the countryside, Peasant cults are kind of a strange melange of Taoism, Buddhism, and local tutelary gods. And people go to the temple and pray to get pregnant, to get rich. And there's the door gods and the kitchen gods and one thing and another. But also in the cities, Catholicism, Protestantism, very, very uh, strong, particularly these house churches, which are the non-patriotic party-sponsored churches. Are these mutually exclusive, or is it sort of the old China where you could be partly Buddhist and partly Taoist and partly whatever? Peasant sort of folk culture religion tends to be that way. Mm -hmm. And then there's been traditionally a higher tradition of more sort of philosophical Buddhism. Tibet would be an example of that. And a lot of people gravitate towards that, but usually it's more educated uh, uh, people who, 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 who take a fancy to that. But there is a hunger uh, I think a deep hunger for some some meaning that exists outside of just getting rich. Wait a minute, you said something about Tibet. Are you suggest all all that we've been hearing is they're crushing Buddhism in Tibet. Mm-hmm. Is Tibet 
Is Tibetan Buddhism sort of seeping out anyway and influencing well, people? What's going Chinese on? are seeping into Tibet. Right. So now Tibet is a great tourist destination for Chinese. Okay. And there's there always been a romanticization, sort of a, a mythic version of Tibet. It's not our version. I wrote a whole book about this, but it's the Chinese version of Tibet, which is a place that's wild and free and it's, it's a crude it's a place to which you get exiled, but it's also a place where, you know, the Tibetans share wives and they have these colorful things and they gallop around. And you would see it even in the Cultural Revolution in, in stage productions and in movies, this, this sort of uh, kind of fascination with this freer, more spiritual place. And a lot of that continues on today. You see in oil paintings, one thing and another. And people go to Tibet and there, there is a, a movement of you know, considerable dimensions of young people seeking solace in Tibetan Buddhism. Well, well, well. Um, how about women? Typically when and the story we've been finding is when people move from the countryside to the city, the women are liberated and become economic players and so on. Is that happening in China? I think to some to, to a large degree, that is true. I mean, in, in urban life, women tend to be much freer. Uh, in, in the countryside, there's been a kind of a retrograde motion to the old way of doing things that center around farms. And since peasants now have they don't own land, but they have long term leases to land as if they owned it. Uh, the old practices of family houses and women and grandparents in the same house are, are, are substantially uh, restored. Uh, they had been completely wiped out, of course, during the Mao years by communes. Mm -hmm. So uh, th 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 that's the case. And in terms of kids, people in the city tend to have negative growth because right. they have one kid. Housing is too tight. Mm -hmm. But in the countryside where they have land and food, uh, they tend to have many kids. Right. So uh, and also this disparity, I think you mentioned you asked about earlier between men and women. It's creating mm -hmm. some real problems because they're they're uh, statistics. That's been going on long enough that must have, they're sort of getting of dating age. What's going on? Well, it, it's a problem. And I, I think it's 100 to 100 around 110 to 114. In other words, for every 100 men, 100 women, there is 114, 110 men. Right. So what's happened is there's a deficit of women. And so there there are. There's a substantial amount of, of kidnapping of brides, you know, simple young women, girls in the countryside, and they'll transport them a thousand miles away and sell them. And the old tradition of wife of wives being sort of chattels anyway mm -hmm. and being sort of almost sold off or at least dowered off is still quite strong in the countryside. And some of them don't speak the dialogue and don't know how to get home. And there's a rash of, of suicides in the last decade or so of these young women who are utterly despairing. And they drink rat poison or pesticides or something and kill themselves. It's, it's quite, quite serious. And, and, and it's not a nice. This isn't kind of an isolated phenomenon. Uh, use the last Orestes here. Uh, science. Now. There's all these religions, but presumably there's no religious aversion to science, or is there? No, uh, that I think mercifully has ended. You know, the old sort of Lysenko debates had their analogs, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago in China. But uh, I think Ch China's problem now in regard to science is not that people aren't free to do good science and research. It's that, that the kind of education that the Chinese specialize in, namely memorization, rote work, 
doesn't always uh, encourage the sort of bold, scientific, sort of preposterous thinking, the critical thinking. I mean, scientists are always trying to disprove things, find something else out, you know, following hunches that may be intuitive. That comes somewhat harder to Chinese. I mean, they've had this tradition of obeying, of, of memorizing, of doing what they're told, and I think they, they, they do lack that dimension that animates scientists in the West at the very highest and most sort of imaginative levels. Okay, last two questions. Uh, one from Aaron Zim. Should I learn Chinese, Mandarin, or Cantonese? Is there, is there any hope that the state will adopt a Romanized orthography? Well, they've tried that at different times, and there, there are Romanizations, but they don't use them within China. Should you learn Chinese? Why not? How old are you? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's pretty hard to learn uh, a language well at, at that age, but if you're willing to go there and hunker down for two years, you could get it, and I think it would be a very uh, useful thing for you. I mean, listen, um, you can learn any language after English. I would choose Chinese and, or maybe Spanish. Uh, you know, whatever happens, China will now be of consequence. And Chinese economy is going to be of consequence, even if it runs into some very uh, troubled, uh, you know, seas. Okay, I'll end with a journalistic question. This is, <clears throat> we'd like a scoop, please. Uh, I understand we'll read in the New York Times in the next few days uh, about a uh, new professional assignment you're taking on next year. You want to say something about that? Uh, sure. Um, well, lo these many years, uh, I've been at Berkeley, um, and um, I'm going to uh, take up a new post come spring. Uh, in New York, the Asia Society has gotten a very nice pot of money to set up a China program. We're, we're playing some uh, New York City soundtrack in the background here. Yes, this will just <laughs> make me feel at home. So uh, I, I will do that. It's a very interesting invitation. And uh, the areas that I do want to focus on are one, media, and second is the environment, and then, of course, some policy questions. But I think just as a final word, uh, the one problem that is absolutely unavoidable and around which everything is going to turn in the next decade or so is the environment. And China and the United States are, uh, that's it. India, too, but India is, 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 you know, if we can't get China and the United States to get into, into a common program on Does China watch the U.S.? Do they watch what we do in terms of environmental yeah, stuff? Yeah, they do, and there's a lot of exchanges because there are a lot of incredibly brainy, smart people, as you know, doing amazing things in this country. It's mm -hmm. just the government is dead in its tracks. Mm -hmm. And the Chinese are aware of a, they have a problem. But uh, that's well, like, going to be the... Yeah, so actually that's part of what China pays attention to, because the U.S. is sort of in workaround mode. Mm -hmm. You have a psychotic leader, you just figure out how to do stuff yourself. Right, right. I learned that in the Army. It happens all the time. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Right. So, but does China know enough not to pay attention to the government who's stuck back in the locker room and they're paying attention to the people actually doing stuff or not? Yes, but there's a problem there, Stuart, because the China is very wary about civil society. And what we have is this incredible fluorescence of civil society working. I mean, look at, you know, um, Branson. Just I mean, these people are falling out of the trees now, you know, throwing themselves at the environment. And it's civil society. But for China, 
civil society is like home churches. It's independent. It's dangerous. And they don't know what to do with it. So it's very difficult, for instance, to get money to China for an NGO. And if you want to do something in China, you know, it's incredibly complicated because it has to go through all these government vettings. So if you don't have a government relating to government, then you've got civil society maybe relating to government. That's easier. But civil society to civil society, which is where 90 percent of the action is now in China and here is, is, is tricky, is difficult. And until you know, China doesn't have a law that allows NGOs to exist. So they have all of these crazy systems. You know, they register as commercial operations and they pay taxes because they can't register as an NGO. I mean, properly, they can do a thing called guaca, where you you take yourself and you you literally you hang yourself off of some other NG, uh, some other institution that has government sanction. So this is a, this is a real problem, and I don't know how we're going to work all this out, but. It's going to be a really interesting ride, and uh, uh, that's an area that I think um, I'm sure many of you will, uh, Vineyard, you'll want to toil in. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. <laughs>